0: You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com
1: Welcome to our podcast mini-series on beginner gardening with me, Sarah Raven, and my great friend, Arthur Parkinson. We're going to talk in this first episode about the horrible word terminology, which is sort of the dictionary of terms that feel a bit intimidating if you don't know what they mean. And all of this will be in the podcast notes. So you really don't need to scribble down notes and the the words and then the definitions, because I promise you every single one will be there for you to download from the website so we're going to start with the sort of glossary of gardening terms and then we thought we would just chat through about latin names and whether you should use them or not and then finish with the gardening year so take you through what arthur and i do whether it be january april october whatever just describe in sort of simple terms what you should be thinking of doing each month will you tell me what an annual is first of all?
0: An annual is a plant that lives all within one season. So it germinates as a seed, grows flowers, sets its seed, normally within about six months.
1: And annuals divide into two groups. One is called hardy. And what that means is it can take the frost and it can actually live in the garden through the winter and come into growth again in the spring it won't get killed by the frost that's a hardy annual and a classic example is a corn poppy that could get sown in a field after its mother has flowered in the summer in the autumn it germinates grows all the way gently through the winter and then in the spring and summer it comes into flower a half hardy annual a classic example uh, and a plant that arthur and i both grow lots of is a cosmos. Now that comes from warmer climates and if that is subjected to frost it'll die. And so you actually sow that in March and April to plant out once the frosts are over in your garden and it will be zapped by the frosts again in the autumn. So annuals are plants that Arthur and I both adore, both in terms of edible but even more in the for Arthur in the in the terms of ornamental varieties. And particularly, it's because they're cut and come again. So what that means is that if you pick the leader, the first flower at the top of the plant, but you only pick it above a pair of leaves, what then happens is that between the main stem and that pair of leaves, you then get two little buds forming, which are called auxiliary buds, and they go on to make next week's flower. So you cut and they come again. And you also have that with lots of the different salad leaves and edibles like spinach or chard. If you pick individual leaves in the main growing season, the heart grows out and will replenish them again. So they are cut and come again. So those are all important sort of terms that we'll band around quite a lot. And then, Arthur, what's a perennial?
0: So a perennial is the lazy gardener's favourite thing in the world in that it comes back year after year. And it also multiplies to its own sort of heart, really. You end up having a sort of heart with nothing in it, but lots of babies around what was the original plant that you planted. So a typical perennial would be an aster or a Hellenian. And some rebeckias, echinops, red-hot pokers, peonies would also be classed, of course, as perennial. They'll last as long as we would do naturally out in the garden. So they're the kind of thing that you can plant in a permanent position. You possibly would lift and divide them after about two years of them growing, but they'll come back year after year, and the majority of them are hardy. But tender perennials are something such as a dahlia, which would be clusters, a perennial, in that it can come back year after year, but it's the kind of thing that will need a little bit of protection from the frost in some parts of the country, normally through mulching or through being lifted.
1: And, and also, I mean, talking about dahlias, Arthur, what, what's a tuber? We perhaps ought to describe what a tuber is.
0: Yeah, we really should. So a tuber is basically an energy store. If you imagine a potato, it's full of all the energy which the dahlia needs to grow. And if you were to cut the tuber in half, it would look exactly like a potato. And from the tuber, the roots every spring start to grow. And in the case of a dahlia, it will make baby tubers all through the growing year. And those tubers you can then lift and divide to make new plants.
1: And the uh, only other thing about perennials I thought might be worth mentioning is that they divide into evergreens. And those are things that remain with leaves above ground, even all through the winter. And that's like one of the hellebores. And then herbaceous. And what herbaceous means is that they die down like a peony. And you think they've died. I mean, they completely disappear in the autumn. And then in the spring, up come fresh new leaves. So the roots are still there below ground with a herbaceous perennial, but the leaves have gone, but they appear again miraculously in the spring. And then what's a biennial, Arthur?
0: So this is where it gets interesting. It's still an annual in that it won't last forever, but it takes a bit longer to come into flowers. So or your lovely things that fill that gap when Chelsea Flower shows on and you look out into the garden and you're glad to have them. So they include foxgloves, honesty, and also sweet williams and wallflowers. And they're all normally sown about the middle of to the end of summer. They'll make lovely little plants and then they'll all overwinter to flower the following spring. So they almost take almost a year to come into flower, but it's between summer and then they flower the next spring
1: exactly and then a couple of other things that you and i talk about quite a lot are propagating and the other thing in terms of propagating that is important to understand what it means is pricking out and all that means is that when you sow seeds into a seed tray we always try and sow them really really well spaced far apart you can't always do that because if they're dust like seeds it's just too fiddly but then the point is, if you have sown them very well spaced, you can then prick them out, which means removing one individual seedling from the seed tray and putting it into its own pot on its own completely. So it's sort of growing. I always think of it as like sort of nursery and then primary school is in its own pot. And and then you sometimes pot it on into secondary school pot and then out into the garden is is life. But pricking out is that first stage when it's going from being with all its brothers and sisters crammed into a seed tray into its own individual pot. And how do you do that, Arthur? Can you give a few tips for the most effective pricking out?
0: So I always wait until my little seedlings are looking like they're properly growing when they've got their first or even their second pair of proper, what look like adult leaves. And that signals that they've got nice little root systems And also what I always do is make sure that they're nice and moist, and that means that as you remove them from the seed tray, they'll take with them a little teabag amount of soil, and that will be a comfort to them as they're put into their first stage of potting on, and it means that they don't become at all hydrated. You should never ever touch the stem of a seedling, that can kill it instantly, just the the friction and the pressure of your fingers can be enough to kill that little plant. So instead use a little teaspoon or even an old pencil as your dibber and just gently pinch out each seedling into the pot.
1: Perfect. And the other thing I know you and I feel pretty strongly about is the whole organic versus chemical way of gardening. So certainly in terms of compost, both you and I would only ever use a peat-free compost and that isn't always easy because certainly coir tends to dry out more quickly and hold less nutrients but there's so many trials going on right now by the RHS mainly but lots of other people and loads of nurseries experimenting with good alternatives to peat and whenever we say use a compost we always mean a a non-peat based compost.
0: Yeah that's absolutely right Sarah.
1: And then also Arthur what do we mean by organic
0: so you won't hear me and Sarah suggesting that you use any chemicals or slug pellets because both me and Sarah and the team at Perch are very much dedicated to gardening with wildlife and making the garden part of our natural environment as much as possible. So although it might seem that we're growing exuberance and tons of flowers in all these different colours, a lot of the time we are working with nature. So organic basically means not using any chemicals or anything that would harm wildlife in a detrimental way. So we will, of course, have to manage slugs and some pests such as vine weevil, but we'd only ever use things that would only kill those specific insects in the garden. We wouldn't use mass chemical genocide on wildlife.
1: Absolutely. Bees and butterflies and birds in the garden are the way in both our gardens. And what we've found over the years here is by encouraging the wild bird and garden bird population so blue tits, great tits, coal tits, long-tail tits, as well as the finches like the goldfinches, which have become so common brilliantly in gardens robins, wrens, thrushes, blackbirds by encouraging them and feeding them through the winter. We have bigger populations in the garden, and they eat the aphids that are a pain. You know, they eat the slugs, and that wonderful noise that you hear, which is a thrush eating a snail in April or May, which is of course fantastic because it means you don't need to kill them yourself because you've got the birds to do that for you. It's an interesting thing whether or not you should use Latin names. And I know certainly when I'm teaching, people come up to me and say, why do you always use Latin names, Sarah? It's so off-putting because I'm a beginner and it's just like learning a whole new language. And I think that is a completely valid question. And I know when I first met Arthur, and to an extent now, he felt quite intimidated by the whole kind of Latin name, poshy, poshy thing. So I just thought it was quite interesting for us to have a quick chat about that. So what's your view on Latin names, Arthur?
0: I really love looking at lovely books um, like your Wildflower Book and seeing all the lovely Latin names, but I can't pronounce them. I was laughed at a lot at Q&A in training because you'd have all these Latin tests and plants I'm not interested in I I couldn't remember but silver birch which I use all the time for garden staking I know is betula which I've probably already said mistakenly but I think they're important and um, they're part of the plant's history and botany is an incredible subject so um, even though I can't pronounce them I do try and my favourites, I do try and know because it's very easy to get a marigold, for example, mixed up with a you know an English and a French marigold. They're completely different creatures, so that's why they're important. You'll you'll go on to Google or somewhere, type in what you think is a common name, and a number of plants with that common name will come up. Whereas the Latin name is its correct identity.
1: Yeah, and even something like a primrose. I mean, that can cover so many things. So. Within like the primrose family, there's polyanthus and primulas and there's mm. candelabra primula. And, this. and so, yeah, it's sort of, I, I don't know. I was brought up by a classically trained, classics teaching Cambridge don called John Raven, my dad. And he very much taught me all the Latin names first, actually, and then the English name. And so I would write it in Latin and then the English but I have a real affection for the what's called common name, the English name. And there are some sort of wonderful kind of links to what they were used for in medicine, like go to bed at noon, tragopogon, because it shuts at noon. It literally, that's it. So you see it in the early morning and then it shuts and that's it. Or don't wet your bed, I think is another one, which is the thing called um, jack in the hedge. That wildflower also... And that apparently used to be given to kids as a T. And so I love I love that sort of association with the English name. But as Arthur says, I think there are good reasons, if you possibly can, begin to learn just maybe the family name so you see what's related to what. I suppose that's the other thing, is it it gives you the kind of overarching structure of the plant world. So don't get too hung up on them, but they're probably worth beginning to learn a few, I guess. And then the other thing that we thought we'd cover here is just running through the year, whether it be maybe Arthur might do the flowery point of view and I might add in a bit on the veg, but what you should be thinking of doing from month to month. And again, all this will be in the podcast notes, so you don't need to write it down. But so January, February, Arthur, are you doing much?
0: Yeah, a little bit, depending on the weather, really. If it's, you know, six foot deep in snow, not much. But if it's a nice, you know, cold winter's day, You know, it's time to get the scarf on, do a little bit of rose pruning, perhaps plant more Mm. bare root things, bare root roses. I planted a hedge the other day, actually. And also it's a time for ordering quite a few things, because if you put your heart, you know, you get these catalogs and you go, oh, I really want that. There's nothing worse than leaving it till April and things being out of stock. So it's a time for, you know, making lists, doing lots of planning and thinking about the year ahead, especially, I would say winter is kind of like half in, half out.
1: Yeah. Preparation, I totally agree, and sowing sweet peas maybe yeah, if you haven't done definitely. them at the end of the year, and in the veg garden sowing broad beans, it's one of the things also shallots, onions, garlic uh the sort of traditional saying is you plant them on the shortest day, which of course is towards the end of December, and you harvest them on the longest, but I tend to do those in January, February, so there are a few things that that you might want to think of doing, not much planting out in the veg garden uh, at that time, mainly just harvesting a little bit but always picking round the vegetable rather than cutting the heart because in the cold weather if you just pick round the outer leaves they can replenish whereas if you pick the heart it tends to kill the plant altogether because of the frost getting into the crown of the plant. So then what about March?
0: March little tiny bit of seed sowing for me but slowly slowly I'd start to sow my hardy annuals in March so things like calendulas, Cerinthy, so if I wanted a Cabea scandens, I'd sow that ideally probably in February, to be honest, late February, but also March as well. Probably the last chance to sow sweet peas as well, because they need time for rooting. And then towards the end of March, start to think about maybe potting up a few dahlia tubers, which means Sarah love to bits. Mm. Uh, we couldn't have a garden without dahlias. And yeah, April. April is the prime month really for seed sowing into May for me.
1: Mm. so definitely if you have a greenhouse or a polytunnel as we do at Perch Hill unlike Arthur who's having to sew everything on a window ledge or in a cold frame outside in his yard we do start sowing big time in in March but only exactly as Arthur says the hardies so whether it be the flowers that he's mentioned and perhaps I would add salvia viridis blue which is one of my favorites and the annual scabius which are both hardy and the cornflowers but I also would sow the hardy annual salads and herbs. So things like parsley, salad leaves like mitzuna or rocket, that kind of thing. And again, broad beans because they're really hardy. But those are the main things. And just beginning perhaps to think about covering some soil to warm it up so you can get sowing direct in April. We, we sometimes do that with a sheet of plastic. So just warm out, warm the soil and dry it out a bit so that you then get good germination in April. And as soon as the clocks change in April, we do start massive sowing of the half hardy annuals, whether it be cosmos, etc. And in the veg garden, we also do massive sowing everything from like courgettes, cucumbers, squash, etc. Oh, I forgot actually in February, I should have mentioned, I do tend to sow towards the end of February tomatoes, chilies and aubergines. So the fruiting varieties. So then what about into May?
0: May is probably my busiest sowing month, actually, mainly because it means I can have a very quick succession of from the windowsill out into the garden. I've got lots of little cloches and it just means as the nights get warmer, seeds grow much faster. So they're not getting leggy on the windowsill. So literally everything I sow in May, if yeah. I haven't sown it before things like sunflowers and cosmos and a lot of things come to me through the posters plug plants too so they can get potted up into little you know nine centimeter pots anything that's tricky to germinate that i haven't got time to sow or space to sow rather that comes as a little ready grown seedling Mm. so they all come so it's a busy time may but a lovely time as well because you're enjoying all your late tulips and the alliums are starting to come out and the garden really feels like it's starting to go into summer properly and you can start to take your jumpers off
1: yeah and I guess you definitely are starting to mow the lawn then as well, aren't you? In, yeah. In May, you know, the grass will start to grow. Everything starts to grow, really, doesn't mm. it? And staking. Yeah, yeah. In May and in, yeah, definitely you want to start staking so all your perennials and things, and making teepees for like sweet peas and and all that kind of thing. But May is is very much as Arthur says, the planting out time. So at the beginning, end of April, beginning of May, we're planting out the hardy annuals because it doesn't matter if they get a few degrees of frost. And from the middle to the end of May, it's really moving on to the half hardies. And even end of May, even dahlias can go out then as well. And then in June, we move on. And in terms of sowing, we're sowing biennials. So this is just what Arthur said in the introduction Foxgloves. That's when we would sow in June. We would sow our foxgloves, which will flower the following May and June. So they don't flower that same season. And what what are the other main things? Oh, of course, there's weeding, isn't there, yeah. by, by June?
0: Yeah, and feeding starts too as well for yeah. your pots and things like that. And if it's been dry, you might have been already starting to have to water things. Yeah. Um, if it's been a dry spring, you know, your pots will need to be watered. And you might have to start thinking about how you're going to store water for the coming summer You know, do you want to get a nice water butt and pest control too, things like lily beetle on your lilies. Um, You know, you have to start thinking about pests and also thinking about the wildlife that might be coming into your garden. So making sure that you aren't cutting any hedges and things like that in case of nesting birds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then July and August, uh, you know, let's all go on holiday, (laughs) put our feet up, have a gin and tonic, have a nice time in the garden, bit of mowing, bit of weeding. Bit of sort of deadheading, I guess. Mm. Bit of late staking if anything's flopping like your delphiniums or something like that. But July and August are actually time to really luxuriate in what you've done and take stock, enjoy it, have a barbecue, play some rounders. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a pretty gardening light time of year, but there is one thing you need to remember in the summer, which is, of course, water, water, water. Don't forget, if you've got lots of pots, they need regular watering and occasional feeding. And then into the autumn. So what about August, September, Arthur?
0: Yeah, I love autumn because it's a real harvest time, isn't it? Especially for, for you and me, you know, in your veg plot, you've got lots of pumpkins and we're picking endless dahlias. But again, autumn is almost like a second spring in terms of the planning. It's the time when you start to think about, you know, all your spring bulbs, So always think back to what you thought of you missed this spring, you know, all those varieties that you might have seen on Instagram and things like that, look them up, start to make plans, lists, but still take it, I would stay fairly steady and just let the garden sort of relax into this jungle until you get this first hard frost, which will happen, you know, normally towards the middle of November where I am.
1: Yeah, yeah, and even can be later where we are. And then October, November... Planting, planting, bulbs, bulbs, yeah. planting, planting, bulb lasagnas, tulips, narcissus in grass, narcissus in borders, narcissus in pots, tul- You know, it's just plant, yeah. plant, plant. Yeah. It's kind of bulb mania, isn't it? Yeah. And similarly, in the veg garden, you're you're trying to get stuff out that will then keep you in some crops through the autumn and winter. And if you've got a glass house, that's when I put, I take out the tomatoes and I put the salad straight into the same spots with perhaps, uh, you know, some nice manure going in there in between to help with water retention. But it's really a time to start preparing for the next year, bit of sowing, bit of planting, and, of course, mainly, mainly bulbs. Mm. And then December, it's feet up, get ready for Christmas. Hopefully one's remembered to force a few amaryllis and hyacinths and paper whites and things so they can come inside now in preparation in the warmth for coming up to flower for Christmas. Any other big things for right at the end of the year?
0: I think looking at the bones of the garden, really, once you've sort of put it to bed and just analysing, you know, okay, what's looking really beautiful? I always condense all my pots into the middle of the garden on a table that I look out of just so I've got a heart to the garden, even though everything's asleep. And I think increasingly me and you both are taking an approach of not cutting everything back, um, still having areas for insects, uh, particularly to overwinter. I start to really feed, feed all the birds. I mean, to be honest, me and Sarah, we are feeding our birds all the way through the season, aren't we? Because they're really helpful with our our pest control. If you encourage your blue tits in, that means all your roses and your lupins, they're all going to get their aphids picked off them as soon as they come into growth. So feed the birds, get a bird bath, And yeah, you know, you start to notice stems more. So maybe buy yourself some nice cornice and dogwoods. And in the veg garden, your kale is the most beautiful thing, isn't it? and for christmas time ask for a cloche or a cold frame if you haven't got one it's the best bit of kit you could possibly want
1: yeah for all your sewing and taking cuttings too Mm. we didn't talk about taking cuttings but anyway we tend to do most of them when things are quiet in july and august actually little um, side shoot cuttings and they will be posted on through the winter and then off you go again with january and february so i hope that was helpful and we will now move on to episode two
0: You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.